the second of a series of collaborations that we've been doing between myself, Daniel Roby, and our guest and friend Dan G of Sheridan's. Today we're going to be talking about franchise value. We've got a number of really good topics and questions that we're going to dive into. Before I do, let me introduce our stage. I am Daniel. I'm the CEO and founder of Think Jam. I've been working for nearly 25 years in the digital marketing space, specializing in film, TV, specifically focusing in, in within entertainment franchises and brands. We've got Dan G, who's a partner at Sheridan's, a leading sports, media and tech law firm. And I'm honored that he's partnering with us today for this discussion. We've also got Louise Brennan, who's EVP here at Think Jam, and Anna Heidecker, who's a senior account director also here at Think Jam. And I'm finally, I'm really happy to introduce Jonathan Sands, who's our special guest, Mr. Franchise himself. Jonathan, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you, Dan. Thank you very much. Very nice to uh, see everyone on today. My name is uh, Jonathan Sands. I've been involved with franchises and uh, customer experiences probably for the last sort of 25 to 30 years, which began um, actually working with Chelsea Football Club originally, where I built their centenary museum at Stamford Bridge because of my company Weird and Wonderful, which was a prop hire and theming company provided services to the film industry. We're also very uh, fortunate to work with Star Wars uh, directly, going back to 1996 and The Phantom Menace. So we've been involved with film uh, since uh, since year dot, um, since when they actually uh, used uh, practical effects and movie sets and stuff like that before computer-generated graphics, where they relied on things like props and costumes. So my company stored and archived all of the Star Wars artifacts in the UK, going back to Phantom Menace. And we subsequently ended up doing a lot of the promotions for the films, which involved hauling things like 30-foot X-Wing fighters up and down the country so that they could appear in places like Leicester Square for your enjoyment. But yeah, so we've been involved with entertainment companies and the high-level franchises for the best part of 30 years. That's good, Jonathan. Thank you. I'm sure we'll hear more as we dive into the questions. So I thought, just to kick things off, what's everyone's favourite item or product that that you own based on an entertainment franchise? What what have we got in the cupboards or what have we got on on display? Should we start with you, Jonathan? I knew you were going to say that. So one of the benefits of starting my own film museum back in uh, 2008 was obviously off the back of the fact that we had all these archive items and props. So I would say the one particular prop that is actually sitting over my shoulder now on my wall is a golden ticket from Willy Wonka um, and the Chocolate Factory. And it's the chocolate bar and the golden ticket, which is framed beautifully on my wall so I can look at it every single day of the week. I feel like I should have probably done you last because now we're going to struggle to <laughs> to keep up with that. L- Lou, what have you what what have you got? Mine's quite interesting because I have been a, a major fangirl nerd most of my life, but in the last two years I've also become a parent, and I've really started to see what IP does to children and how you can use it to get them to do things. So I'm actually going to say that mine is an Elmo toothbrush because it's, it's the only damned way I can get my child to clean her teeth. 
I have Elmo sun cream, I have Elmo toothbrush, I have Elmo toothpaste, and her love of him means that she does things that she has to do but maybe doesn't want to do. And I think there's a real power in that, and, and it's certainly more my most valuable IP in the house at the moment. Nice. Mr. G? Evening, Daniel. Evening, everybody. So I'm going to go with going back a little bit of time now to when I was a kid in the 80s and I just remember having just tons of plastic, like obviously toy plastic. And that was, I was just noting down some of the sort of 80s cartoon brands that may or may not resonate with the rest of the group, like Thundercats and Musk and Centurions and He-Man and Transformers and like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I just recall having so much plastic and then my mum and dad obviously telling me to get rid of it at some point when I got a little bit older and didn't really want to, which is probably a bad decision considering some might have been a bit more valuable now. But yeah, I just re- recall those 80s, pretty iconic, I think they're iconic, um, cartoons as the basis for that sort of franchise IP side of things. And it sort of, yeah, f- f- in a way fills me with a nice warm, fuzzy feeling of remembering back to my... Um, youth a little bit ago you had me at child of the 80s Dan. anna what, what have you got so instead of reaching for probably an all-time category i think i've got to go with um, a standout from the past year which also riffs a bit off daniel's 80s affinity um i'm a big stranger things fan and i really found myself mesmerized by netflix's stranger things drive-through experience that graced los angeles here for a couple of months I think they really did an incredible job with curating from end to end, right down to the merch that accompanied, with my favorite takeaway in particular probably being the branded Bluetooth speaker that came in the form of an old school cassette tape, which I do occasionally use despite the many sophisticated speakers I've got laying around my house. Very cool. And and I'll throw mine in into the ring. One of my favorite franchises, as some of you might know, is Die Hard. Certainly the first three. I get a little bit worried after those three, but I've been obsessed with those movies for a number of years. And I was lucky enough to be given a gift by a client following a tour of Nakatomi Plaza in L.A., which is which is now a Fox Plaza. And she gave me an original 1988 Die Hard poster. That's my pride and joy. I have nowhere to put it, but it's my pride and joy. So we've been talking about IP and entertainment brands and what we own. Let, let's talk about how people turn that into businesses and, of course, how that world works and how we generate revenue and how we build audiences around the world. I think Jam's definitely been fortunate for the last 15 years to work on a number of huge franchises dating back to um, Twilights and Hobbits and Hunger Games and all, all sorts of movies in between, dozens of them. I guess the first question to the to the group if we've got a unique ip if someone's got ip or an entertainment brand where do you start to decide how best to use it and how to convert it to revenue do you come up with the idea of i want key rings first or do you look at the ip look at the audience and look at what the data tells us to turn that ip into merchandise and products and spin-offs and so on jonathan can i point that at you yeah yeah of course I guess the one thing when I look back at the various franchises that I've worked with, whether it be Star Wars, Bond or Potter, the common link is that the fans drive the demand. Okay, And we always went to, as a first port of call, destinations and to create destinations for the fans to go to. 
whether it was Star Wars, the exhibition, whether it was Bond in Motion or the, the original Cars of Bond or the Harry Potter shop at King's Cross, whatever it was that we were actually creating, we created the destination first. And then everything else, the experiences that we put in those destinations or whatever products that we created for those destinations came next. And it wasn't always a case of just sort of throwing everything at it from day one. If I look back to King's Cross Station and the shop that we created there, it was at a time when there was very little in the way of Potter consumer products. The films had finished. A lot of the individual companies that were creating product for the franchise had sort of um, ended their consumer product contracts. So there wasn't a lot in the way of products, but the demand was still there. So what we had to do was create product and understand very, very quickly what it was that the fans wanted. And it, it, it took us a little while. It took us a year. And every single week, the shelves would be cleared. But we had to create the product behind that. Remember, the first product we created was this brass nine and three quarters key ring. And the changing point was the fact that we took a number, which was obviously nine and three quarters that everybody knows from the film, and we put the destination around that number. We put King's Cross London as part of the branding for that particular shop. And we created products around that. So the destination drove out the demand for the product that we created. And that's ultimately what ended up as the success of, of those shops. And we did the same thing with Bond and Bond in Motion, uh, the exhibition, and Star Wars, the exhibition in London. We created destination product that fans uh, wanted. You had your in-world product from each of those franchises whether it was a Yoda whether it was a Dobby whether it was a you know a, a Bond piece but ultimately the formula stayed the same not all franchises command the same level of investment because they don't all have the attraction like some of these very high high level brands do but there is opportunity in most IP somewhere it's just a matter of uh, digging deep and uh, uh, giving it a try. So from that point then, it, it, I mean, clearly that's looking at what the shoppers are telling you and you're spending a lot of time to work that out and that evolves. When, when you've got a franchise that's perhaps not so obvious or not so big at that time, we're looking at it from a data point of view to advise a client. I mean, Anna, how do you look at data analytics behaviors to figure out what consumers want what they're asking for where the trends are can you give us some examples on that i think data absolutely plays into it of course but you know i think actually what this conversation makes me think of is last night i was in a clubhouse room and it, the topic was on creators growing their following and there was a comment made around how multi-directional dialogue making for the best community 
And on the other side of that, really creating content without reading the comments is a bit of a monologue. And I don't think it's all too different with brands and franchises. Perhaps this is an oversimplification, but you listen and you adapt. And of course, again, data does sometimes drive that. But we also, you know, to bring a couple of brand examples into it, we saw this with the release of Pokemon Go, right? Users naturally began to form local meetups to enable them to build those bigger teams they needed to conquer or catch those coveted and rare Pokemon for their collections. Pokemon and Niantic were able to monetize this by formally introducing the global community meetups um, and facilitating really from the top. And I think Mattel with Barbie is another great example. They suffered from archaic body image stereotypes and blowback over lack of feminist values. You know, cue an innovative pivot into things like Barbie kicking off their line of inspiring women doll collection um, or their Anything is Possible campaign. Other brands, I think, perhaps more directly engage in UGC programs, which is another way to, you know, introduce a campaign driven by and dedicated to your most loyal evangelists. And I think consumers want to be seen and heard. And it's a very popular and effective mechanic to enable that. And Dan, maybe one for you, but how do you go about protecting your IP, your your brand, your property? You know, we're creating here lots of different parts from one sort of seed and there's logos and signs and sets and costumes and dialogues and then there's suddenly key rings and toys and plushes and all sorts. How can you protect, can you protect it all? How do you protect it all? I'd give you the short answer because, you know, I'm really looking forward to hearing more from from Lou and Jonathan and Anna as well. But, yeah, the short answer is that there's loads of different ways from copyright protection, uh, design right protection, um, registering trademarks, registering registered designs and patents, etc. Deciding how particular marks are going to be put together, deciding at the same time about an infringement strategy. You know, we work with loads and loads of brands inside and outside of sport and entertainment where trademarks and um, copyright are right at the heart of their monetization and asset strategy. So it becomes sometimes quite a, a very important element to be thinking about when, you know, firms and brands are particularly collaborating with lawyers that, the same values that um, the brand is trying to outwardly project are also the same values to a degree that lawyers or the individuals that are working with the brand protection agencies to you know, protect those very valuable assets when effectively they might be passed off, they may be counterfeit goods, there may be other types of passages that, that brands and other companies will want to try and circumvent from. So, you know, when you get to that stage, obviously, the, the, the brand has to, in a way, monetized or realize that there's, you know, good monetization opportunities. And that's obviously when the lawyers will come in and, and get involved. Jonathan, one of the first things that you said was, and, and Anna said, was about understanding what fans wanted. And as a lawyer, I obviously don't really see that side to a degree is that to what extent do does market research going out and speaking to people actually have a real bearing on things because sometimes obviously people think they know what they want but sometimes what they want and what um, is designed for them can be pretty different i really think from the interesting bit that i've kind of been tracking with on this conversation separate certainly not a lawyer over over here but i think the interesting kind of bit that's coming into kind of protecting your ip and licensing is really the generation that we're living in. You know, I was, again, just listening to an interesting conversation that was being hosted um, 
by the person that protects the Hello Kitty franchise. And, you know, she was relating it to we're living in this Etsy kind of generation that they just think that cultural icons are there for them to use. And they don't quite understand that corporations are there to license these things. And that really only grows exponentially or this problem grows exponentially with social media or even with Google images that makes it very easy for you to find anything that you're looking for and not necessarily have the due diligence to track it back to the original source. You know, we're living in, a, in an age where creators are, are kind of powering that universe and trying to make a living. And so I think there's, there's also on the other side, it's not all completely malice, right? I think there's a little bit of misunderstanding around the legalities around what you can copy online. And again, going back to the livelihood of artists that are trying to kind of make that experience. So I think what I've had my eye on is going into the unicorn startups or the different companies that are trying to build the best platform for brands to own and license their IP. So it is kind of more of a coexisting universe instead of just a strict protection, but a more of an easier share with the world. Yeah, and that was really well put, Anna. And Daniel, it's a brilliant question because the more prominent the IP the bigger the challenge because we always uh, or I always went on the premise if I don't do that someone else will because vacuums are created the larger the IP the more opportunities people are going to see and of course creators are you know I am a creator so you see opportunity and you you want to create something I um, happen to from a very uh, early point in my career, learn that the best way was to follow the official line. And I was exposed to licensing very early on. So therefore, I was conditioned to do it one way. But because of the way people can create things nowadays, multiple platforms to be able to create things, people just think it's just okay. And I can't name the actual franchise. Um, but I remember sitting on an anti-piracy meeting one day and I'm thinking that there's a one or two points of challenge where people have to take things down or something might have been identified as an infringement is taken. And I was horrified to learn that there was like 38,000 problems and takedown notices that had to be put out there because it, it is on an industrial scale. But where we focused our energies on was rather than the products was actually on the destinations and there was fewer of those but there was still in every single franchise that I've worked with over the years there was always somebody or something somewhere that was trying to create something unofficially and and I again I went off the premise that if we didn't do it somebody else would try and do it yeah, and I think for me, I've always approached these things as a fan. I'm probably a lawyer's worst nightmare. I actually think it's on brands to not relax because we all know that IP needs protecting, but it, it, it's about product and it's about content. And if there is a demand for that content, like you say, someone's going to deliver it. So you really need to allow kind of content creators and product creators to be innovative, to meet that demand. And in terms of how you work out what that demand is, it is about listening. I think it's genuinely about being a fan yourself. You can use data, you can use your eyes, you can talk to fans. There's no, there's actually no better way than talking to fans. And Jonathan, you talk about the destinations that you create and there for me are such epic market research locations. I remember we worked on launching Platform 9 and 3 Quarters together 
and there was the shop, but then there was just the trolley um, that you could push through the wall and the photo op and, and the scarf. And it was the single best thing and the, the, the fans went to it for that and then went into the shop. And that was a very, I'm assuming, reasonably costed photo op. But that was pretty much the big draw to that. And then hearing the conversation and hearing the chatter and, hear, and seeing the reactions, you really do need to understand the mindset of a fan and what will delight them. So where do you draw the line? I mean, we see lots of, we see fan art, right? We see fans creating videos on TikTok. We see them doing posters. We've seen them doing drawings and art. We've seen them making things. They're fans. They're passionate about the, the properties and the franchises. Where do you draw the line between allowing and empowering them or stopping and restricting them? It's the commercials. So brands aren't in this to not make money. So I think you've got to embrace certain elements of it that become inspirational. And can you use that content to then attract other fans and broaden it out and broaden out your fan base? I personally, I think especially when it comes to hand-drawn or personally created expressions of fandoms, it's a mistake to try and take those down. When people start attaching monetary value to it, then we all know that they're going rogue. And I think that's where the line is for me. I think, and, and Daniel will no doubt be able to answer this more eloquently than, than myself, but when it comes to products, it's a lot of it is about what you don't see and it's for us under the license and because of our own approach to product development we had very strict ethical approaches safety the materials that things and items were being produced in you know we obsessed over that stuff because the reputation of the brand is everything and it's very very important to understand that that the amount of work that goes into producing these products for the fans it is with the strictest of strictest of controls and measures unfortunately if products are being produced elsewhere where they don't have those same checks and measures unfortunately it still could come back to the brand and we all know that this is where the highest level of protection is required and presumably that protection is not just about the the quality and the safety but presumably it's about the the quality of the article itself the value well, that someone's... you you can't stop people having fun and having fun with their brand or with their favorite franchise and stuff like that and if they post stuff they're going to post stuff it's very different as uh, lou said it's when it's commercialized that becomes more of an issue because it, it is so complicated, all of that, that's when you're going to raise some eyebrows. I remember in the old days when you used to be able to travel freely and we weren't all in COVID lockdown, but I used to travel very frequently through Heathrow and I would walk past your potter shop, which is the most beautiful shop and you know, very smart furnishings and fixtures and amazing products. And the whole potter experience is in that shop. I could carry on walking along and there's maybe another gift shop or sweet shop a little bit further up the concourse and they've got a stand of some sort of cheap potter merch just sort of hanging from the wall, a couple of towels and a few t-shirts and a pair of socks. I mean, how does a franchise differentiate between those two things? Does that, that causes you challenges, presumably? It's an interesting point because a lot of that product and the same went for Star Wars, same went for Bond, didn't sort of pitch up until we'd actually pitched up something 
that was well-rounded, like an entire store or attraction dedicated to that specific IP. The most important thing was that that product that was being sold elsewhere, as long as it was licensed product, it was okay. The difference, I guess, with what we did versus third-party stores and nothing wrong with the, the product, the licensed product from consumer products, was of a high quality and, and all that sort of thing is that we told stories, you know, we curated stories within our experiences and whether it was, whether it was the, the planets that certain characters were from or whether it was the houses that people were from or related to, we curated our uh, merchandise, if you like, and our experiences into those stories so that it was a place as Louise was saying before, that fans wanted to be. Whether someone picked up a, a licensed product in, in a stationery shop or a newsagent shop, it was up to them. As long as it was licensed, it wouldn't bother the studio themselves, and nor should it, because it was efficient and licensed. It didn't really have much bearing on the experiences that we created. Thanks, John. Joseph, welcome to the stage. I, I see you've got a question for the Great. Hi. Um, yeah, so it was just around kind of the freedom people have to create their product to the point that it becomes commercialized. So if we take an instance such as like the FA, whereby the FA can't trademark the three lion scarf, and as such, loads of very good counterfeits or replicas are produced, and they're not the official merchandise. However, they can be sold because they're given the license to do so, and they operate within trademarks. When the product is obviously then sold to the end consumer and it doesn't meet the mark, it affects obviously the brand of the Football Association and England. So I guess my question is, how do you address that challenge, bearing in mind you can't use any kind of legal route to restrict um, individuals who want to produce fake scarf, half and half scarf or merchandise that um, relate to an event? either uh, domestic or international football, how would you recommend one go about addressing that type of challenge? I, I can try to answer it, guys, maybe at first instance. Joseph, nice to chat as always. I think if I've understood the question right, I think sometimes the important thing to bear in mind for rights holders generally is whether there is a trademarkable mark. And it, it sounds like, and I wasn't aware of it in the FA's instance, for example, that the three lions, are you suggesting that the three lions wasn't tr distinctive enough to to be a trademarkable mark? Is that Was that the, the problem that the FA has? Yeah. Yeah. Which means effectively then that the brand, the rights holder has to differentiate on different grounds, which is just as a presumably the FA does and did, is that you authenticate the brand with official logos, with um, official merchandise relationships, with quality brands alongside it like Nike and others as well. So that what I think then people probably understand or should understand to a degree is, you know, the person along Wembley Way selling half and half scarves. I think some or most people probably won't think they are official England merchandise, whereas in the club shop on the website through official channels that, you know, vendors within Wembley or otherwise know that the quality of the merchandise and the way that it is packaged, sold, 
etc is more likely to be authentic and authenticated by the rights holder accordingly but over and above that that's just really an issue of what mark and marks you can actually trademark and they can be distinctive enough and that's sometimes actually the issue for brands which is you want to put together a brand framework which means that um, your ip can be protected is distinctive enough and you can commercialize accordingly does that answer your question joseph yeah it does thanks then appreciate it thanks pleasure i was gonna just throw a different question down and just change the direction of travel for a minute and come off the sort of IP and law side and coming back to our fans and our, and our franchises, I think a big thing that we all know and with, that we all face, certainly when we're looking after franchises for long, long periods of time, is how the audience, the fan, ages over time. You can get a kid into a movie, but then by the time the sort of fourth one, fifth one, sixth ones come out, they're some, a decade or more older. How do we deal with the management of audiences that age and keeping those uh, fans' appetite alive? How do we, from a marketing, social standpoint, I'm looking at you and you, Lou and Anna, mm-hmm. and also from a sort of consumer shop standpoint, secondly, for you, Jonathan? I'll jump in first. I think the key here is about defining priorities. We've all seen audiences age up, but I was actually just this week having a really interesting conversation with one of our clients who runs a preschool brand. And we were talking about the fact that there is always someone discovering this brand for the first time. So we can never stop introducing it and we can never make assumptions in how we market it. And I think that's really important. And it's something that we've always especially on things like Potter, which now has been around for so long. You can't make assumptions. You can't make assumptions on what people know, what people don't know. And even though we manage fandoms, you've got to find a balance of talking to that fandom that is in the know, but not um, out of reach for kind of new generations coming into it. The big thing here, and and Anna, I'm probably stealing her thunder because Anna loves data, is really about looking at the data and identifying cycles and not just brand life cycles, which as marketeers we talk about a lot, but also the life cycle of a fan or the life stage of a fan. We're really privileged to be looking and working on brands where now we're seeing original fans becoming parents, some becoming grandparents. But there's also multiple different life stages that you can cater to. I remember when I first became a godparent and I was so excited at when I could introduce her to Potter. And it, like, it, I, I bought her a quill and some, some writing paper and we became pen pals. And oh my gosh, it was just the most magical time. And there's so many different ways of doing it. It's really important to try not to be all things to all fans, but decide what you need to do, what the job at hand is for the next X amount of time and actually stick to it because otherwise you end up feeling quite fractured. And there's also so many touch points on a franchise where you can talk to different audience groups. Knowing where they are and how you prioritise your messaging is quite a complex job. It's why there are whole franchise teams within brands, but it's really important. And again, going back to how you tell those stories to those fans at that stage. So, Jonathan, you talked about telling stories within merchandise. I completely agree with that. We've actually currently got a team on the ground 
in New York at the Potter store. That's evolved to include VR, which is capturing a whole new fan base. Lewston does a really good job of all different generations. There's something for everybody. I, and this will surprise nobody who knows me, when I went to the Wizarding World uh, in, at Universal, uh, I found the gift shops as much fun as the rides because they're fascinating to me and there's so much cool stuff in there. So really, you've got to know your audience really well. You've got to define what your priorities are and how you want to communicate with them and what the best touch point is. So it's just, it's about planning. It's a lot of planning. It's a lot of work, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I go back to the beginning of the conversation when I said that the fans will drive the demand. If if I think back to Star Wars, for example, remember that was originally, it was a kid's cowboy movie set in space. That was the beginning of a particular journey. And the audiences, what they did is they grew the films and they told the stories as the audiences grew. And it's the same with the other IPs that we're talking about in this conversation. And a lot of it is down to the investment by the studios and the storytellers into those brands. There's always this sort of constant at the back of their minds where they want to keep engaging new and up and coming audiences. But the most important thing is to respect the fan base, ultimate respect the fan base, and they will look after you. And it's like, talking down to a child don't talk down to a child you know these are grown uh, people that have loved and grown with their friends I grew up with most of these franchises as my influences and I love them as the next fan and each of them has their own language and their look but you're developing product and experiences for those grown audiences and if they bring their children with them so be it when they're their nieces and their nephews so be it I've just been involved with a new exhibition in, in Covent Garden, my old film museum, which is Harry Potter on location, which tells the story of the last 20, of the 20 years since uh, Philosopher's Stone. Beautiful photographic exhibition. It's a very heavily curated um, exhibition, very detailed, and it tells a lovely story from the beginning of um, Harry's journey from Privet Drive and the locations that were used for that. And there's so many different ways that these stories can always be told to engage the fans, but always respect your fan base. Jonathan, you were just talking about exhibition space, and I know you've done dozens and dozens, some of them physical, in location. You mentioned Covent Garden, you've had the Film Museum on, on the Embankment, you've had all sorts of different exhibitions for different properties. You've got something new coming up that's a different way to engage fans and audiences, haven't you? Yes, thanks, Dan. So a lot of this has been born out of the complexities with building physical bricks-and-mortar visitor destinations. It's very complicated because it's it's obviously requires a venue to begin with. When you're talking about venues in capital cities uh, like London and New York, you know, they're very expensive and then you've got to actually mount the exhibition and create the destinations and the, and the customer engagement interaction. So what we've done is we've created a, a new company. It's called The Virtually Group. And we're going to be creating destinations and experiences in the virtual world. And we've developed this platform ourselves which enables fans to visit these destinations and also in a multi-user 
environment where you can invite friends and interact and mingle with them. And we're going to be launching in the next few weeks, which you'll have to watch this space for. To begin with, it's non-IP uh, related. We're working with artists and, and creators, original art and original cultural uh, artifacts and items. And we're going to be displaying them in a virtual environment. And it's very exciting because suddenly my canvas is infinite up and and across and it's as far as the imagination wants to take us whereas previously when we created experiences we had to fit them in a box about the fact that they were a very large box it was still a box and you're limited by the wall the four walls that you you are within so for us if you look at the way the pandemic has kept us all indoors i think that there's of course there's still a very, very big demand for physical experiences. Don't get me wrong. This isn't to replace them. This is to work with them and to create that really sort of holistic experience on steroids, really, that the virtual world can give us. Anna, from a social perspective, over the last 18 months or so, have we seen a change in how fans of franchises fandoms are behaving differently are they doing things differently i think jonathan just began to touch on it right and i think the other thing that we can look to is our phones and what we're using right now to host this conversation right i mean clubhouse was kind of born out of that time and i I would say that it's just one of many kind of in that category in that virtual category that has become more significant than ever you know the virtual category has always been or has been really huge for the past handful of years but it's only getting more sophisticated i would say more dispersed but i would say that kind of lends to a tribe mentality for fans as well there is the the greater fandom that they kind of belong to again I, you mentioned that kind of evangelist word and there's kind of an all-encompassing factor to that but the different kind of ways to integrate on virtual platforms has begun to be able to allow them to again kind of find their tribe and find that medium that really works best for them to engage thanks anna anthony welcome to the stage have you got a question for the panel i do thanks for having me my question is for jonathan And it seems like we're just getting into this topic right now. But as we move further and further into the digital realm, I'm interested to hear your approach to taking your physical events that you've done in the past. And like, what have you done to pivot and still create that immersive experience online when people are miles and miles away from the exhibition to make them feel included as though they're actually there? Okay, so that's a really, really good question, Anthony. And... When I'm curating the virtual environment, it is with the same approach that I would have as if I was creating the physical environment. So I'm treating it like a physical environment. I'm not just creating a computer game, for example. This is very much a customer experience. I always hear the word curated banded around, but it actually it comes down to quite a a handful of people that tell stories in a specific way. And that customer journey, whether it's in the physical or the virtual, it actually, the rudiments remain the same. Now, what we've had to layer on top of that is rather than just walking around the space aimlessly, 
whether it's in the physical or the virtual, it is much more fun when you do it with other people. And ultimately, one of the key briefs into our team here was the ability to interact and enjoy the exhibits and the experiences together. And that's what the virtual can actually allow us to do now. Not in a gimmicky way, but in a way that allows us to put features in there like uh, virtual assistants or museum curators or meet the artist or, you know, it enables people to engage, fans to engage directly with the creators because the creators can be more readily available regardless of where they are in the world to be available into the virtual space and interact with the fans through this multi-user experience tool that we've that we've interjected so there's it's just the way you kind of creatively approach it and kind of go a bit left field to make it a bit more engaging and unique really so it's innovation it's just in a different form do you think that will mean we don't have to travel to comic con or the next star trek convention we can do all of that from home in the future (laughs) there is nothing more fun than actually going to the places and interacting with humans, right? This is not to replace that. I think what this does, it enables more people that aren't able to necessarily uh, travel or it enables the creators and the franchises to keep in touch with their audiences on an ongoing basis within a virtual environment as well as a physical environment. And I think the two work hand in hand so they're definitely i think it actually creates more opportunity for physical environments it's interesting because my original roots were as a photographer and i saw the death of film you know physical film when everything went digital and everyone said oh that's the end of photography everyone's going actually it created more photographers and that's what this does this enables more people to engage rather than a limited amount of people to fit in a space, which is what the limitations of a physical environment does. So it just opens it up in a far greater way. Anthony, did you want to add something? Yeah, I did. Um, You know what I've seen most recently that felt very natural as though you were almost there was that I attended a virtual event where there was an actual hallway so not only were you able to enter into different rooms, but then you actually were able to see people throughout the, out- the exterior of the layout of the room. And you were able to have a chat with them and then talk one-on-one with them. And that felt very personal. So I feel like the more that we actually take those cues of what it's like to be at the event and have those people design the virtual environments, the more we're actually going to create that seamless yeah. experience. So it's just a supplemental extra add-on to feel as though you're there. But I I really feel that the future is going to need people who've actually done the work and been on the event space to actually be there to design what the future is like for the virtual realm. I couldn't agree more with you. (laughs) Well done, Anthony. I couldn't agree more. Thanks, Anthony. Jonathan, you talked earlier and we were talking about quality. And I know you've talked to me a lot about quality and it's not just about a sort of cheap hat or a cheap t-shirt or cheap keyring i'm not specifically talking about just the products themselves but as i understand it there's an importance to maintain the quality of the brand and the 
representation of it. How do you do that? How do you do that with your teams to ensure that that quality is maintained? I always reiterated to our teams that we were always about three things. We were about relationships, reputation and results. And essentially, uh, franchises and IPs can't afford failure. And they are relying on you as a guardian to maintain that level of quality of execution that made them great. Remember, we didn't invent their brand. They invented their IP and their franchise. Our job is to maintain it and uh, give the fans um, what they want. So it's really important that whatever it is that we do, we do it in the best possible way that we can at the highest level of quality, ethical and safety elements to it because the reputation of the brand relies on it and your reputation relies on it and you build the businesses you build your business uh, by uh, those relationships and the fact that you have had a prior result and success the more success you have the more you will be given by a licensor, the person that owns the IP and the franchise, because that level of trust is there, that bond is there. And, and if they trust you, you will get more. So your reputation is absolutely everything in this field. And Anna, from a social perspective, we manage you know, hundreds of millions of fans for a number of different franchises. Is that the same for managing the quality of the output, the quality of the content on social? Absolutely. I think it, it goes back to really a good wrap up point for what many people have touched on in their answers, which is, you know, you can't be all things for all fans. So it's really kind of staying true to your authenticity. And again, just being in the places that is best for them to engage. I think we're going through a real resurgence of kind of connectivity with others. And again, a kind of independence on what you think a brand should be doing for you and what you take from a brand. So Absolutely. So just having a streamlined approach to making sure that you've got, again, se separate strategies for reaching out to all of those. And again, making sure that you're listening to the conversation and injecting those cultural touch points of what's going on around you. It's not always just about the data. It's marrying that data with um, what's going on in the world. Thanks, Anna. So I'm going to say thanks to our panel. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think it's fascinating. A huge thanks to you, Jonathan, for your time and insight into the franchises that you've managed and of course we wish you all the best with your new virtual venture and we look forward to seeing where that goes as always mr g thank you for your uh time and insights and a big thank you to sheridan's for supporting this event and thanks to lou and anna for um joining us and giving your insights and experiences from think jam and thanks to all our guests and speakers